Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We have a little bit different agenda today. It is a great joy to be able to add to the leadership here at GCA. I have been watching and waiting for years, kind of trying to figure out who the future of GCA was and what the future of GCA looked like. I don't know if you all have noticed this, but I'm not getting any younger. Despite my efforts, I have really tried, and uh, I can't get taller, grow more hair, or get younger, it turns out. So this morning, we're going to be ordaining Micah as a deacon here at GCA. Turn to the book of Acts. Turn to chapter 6. We'll talk a little bit about what this means that we are ordaining a deacon here at GCA. In the early church, there was a controversy that erupted because there were some Hellenistic Jews who felt that they weren't being treated the same as the blood Jews within the church. So they came to the elders and said, you need to settle this dispute among us. And the elders decided it's not really right for us to leave the word of God and the work that we've been called to in order to go and do the day-to-day stuff that is necessary to keep the church going. In fact, Luke records that as they said, uh, it's not right that we should leave the word of God to go wait tables. And so there are those within the church who are called to do the work, the administrative work, the day-to-day stuff of the church so that the elders of the church can concentrate on what they're called to do, which is the study and the teaching of the word. Here's the story. Starting at chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, And after praying, they laid hands on them, and the word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That is what we're going to do today. We are putting Micah to the task that he's been called to here within the church. Now, we are not, by laying our hands on him, we are not imputing him with any particular gift or ability that we have and are conferring to him. Instead, what we're doing is simply recognizing what God has already made obvious. Micah has been doing the work of a, of a deacon around this church for a long time, and I don't think there's anyone in our congregation who would disagree with that statement. Micah has stepped into leadership just as the natural course of the church has continued and grown. He's been leading men's group for the last couple of years, showing his ability to step up and to lead and to guide people. But I've also watched the way that people react to him. People trust him 
Oh, I don't know why. <laughs> People trust Micah. They come and they talk to Micah. They trust that he has the best interests of not only they themselves, but of the church at large. He has those interests at heart. So all we are doing today is recognizing what God has already made obvious. God has given gifts to Micah that are the particular gifts for a biblical deacon. Now Paul, of course, as he was going around planting churches and establishing churches, You'll notice that in the account in the book of Acts that the elder said, go find somebody from among you. That's really important. Don't bring in an outsider. Bring in somebody that you all know. Bring in someone whose reputation you all know, somebody you can approve of who's already been among you. Paul says the same thing when he's laying out the requirements for a deacon and an elder. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3 if you want to read along. After laying out the responsibilities of an overseer, Paul then writes, 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 8, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued. That phrase means not somebody who's two-faced, not somebody who would say something to you over here and something else over there. Somebody you can count on to remain consistent. And one thing I have seen in Micah is that he's very consistent. He works with and for Kellen over here. Would you say that's true of him so far? Extremely so. Yeah. What you see is what you get. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain. In other words, he's not in it for the money. Considering that we don't pay our deacons yet, I think I'm pretty confident that he's not in it for the money. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think the last couple of years in watching Micah lead the men's group, all of us collectively have gotten a good sense of whether Micah respects the word of God whether he's able to convey the word of God, and whether the other men of the church look to him as a natural leader. Anybody want to disagree with that? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Let these also be tested, and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. I'll give you one of the best evidences that I can find that Micah should be a deacon here at GCA. I asked him to be a deacon a while ago, and he wasn't willing to do it yet. He so respected the office and the ordination that he originally said, no, not yet. He wanted to concentrate on his life and his work and his wife, get all that in order. And then a couple of months ago, we talked again, and he said, I think it's time. I'm ready now. And then when I told him, well, let's wait until the Sunday that David Morris is here, he said, well, I'd be honored to be ordained by David Morris. And he included me, too, just so you know. So, yeah. Let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. There's some debate about why Paul brought up women there. Some of your translations will say they're wives. It seems to be a reference to what kind of man are we ordaining well, we know pretty quickly what kind of man we're ordaining by looking at his wife. What kind of woman has he married? How does she conduct herself in the congregation? Is she an open embarrassment? Or is she somebody that we can all be proud of? I don't think there's anyone in this room who isn't very proud of April. And it's going to take her supporting him in order for him to do this job correctly. Part of the reason that he turned me down previously 
was that he wanted to make sure his wife was willing to stand by his side as he did this. So verse 12, let deacons be husbands of only one wife. Are there any other women we don't know about? Okay, good. Then I feel good about that one. And good managers of their children. Doesn't have any children yet. We're going to assume that one for him. And of his own household. Well, I've been to his household. I've seen the way he ran his business. I've talked to Kellen about the way he works with Kellen. I know that he is a good manager, which I think part of the reason that's so important in a deacon is how is he going to help manage the church if he can't even manage his own affairs? But he's a good manager. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So as we ordain Micah a deacon today, know that there's responsibility that comes with the job and that you do get a reward, and it's a reward from God. It's not the reward of men looking at you and saying, my, he must be high and mighty now. He must be mighty important. He's made his way all the way to deacon. There's a reward involved, but the reward comes from God you end up with a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus because you have committed your life and your way to serving God through serving his people. Now, when you come up here, we're going to ask you to kneel down. David and I are going to put our hands on your head. You're going to feel the weight of our hands on your head. But when you feel that weight, let that remind you of the weight of responsibility that comes with the job. Because if you're doing the job well, you're going to give yourself away for other people. You're going to give yourself away even when you're not rewarded for it. You're going to give yourself away simply because that's what Christ did for you. You're going to reflect his kindness, his grace, even when you've just run out of kindness and grace. Sometimes you're going to be asked to or required to do things that you'd really rather not. Because for the rest of your deaconhood, there are going to be things that you're going to want to do in life that you realize you just can't. Because you're a deacon. You're somebody that represents Christ, not here only in the church, but in life. And people are going to look to you to be different to not be like the world so there's a sacrifice involved and when our hands lay heavy on your head let that remind you that it's it's a heavy job while you're kneeling here and our hands are on your head your knees are going to start to hurt let that remind you that you need to spend time on your knees you can't do this job without lots of prayer and without resting on Christ to accomplish it for you and through you. At the point where you decide to be self-sufficient, please quit. Please come to us and say, I don't want to do this anymore. Rely on Christ and you'll do just fine. We all have tremendous confidence in you. All right, Steve is going to come lead a song. Uh, He's got a medley of songs he's going to explain to you. And then uh, David Morris is going to come and blow the roof off the place, so you're going to want to be here for that. (laughs) He will come and preach God's word to us this morning. It's always a pleasure to have David Morris among us. David is one of my oldest and dearest friends, and I don't think I've had anybody more influential in my ministerial life He's one of the two men who ordained me into the ministry. And I think I can say without fear of contradiction that he and I agree more theologically than just about anyone else I know. And I forget what it was. We were talking on the phone the other day. And he said, oh, you're teaching through Job. 
I said, yeah, we just finished the book of Job. And he said, what do you think of Elihu? <laughs> and we started talking about him, whether he was a precursor of God and preparing the way and stuff. And we were exactly in league with each other. And there's some controversy about Elihu out there. And yet David and I ended up exactly on the same page. And once again, to absolutely nobody's surprise, David and I agreed. So it is always a pleasure when David gets to come our way. He and I will be teaching and preaching at the conference in Gladeville this week. So we get to spend a whole week together, and that's always a great joy. All right, Steve. So follow along, and if you don't know the course, you will by the end of our session. to our great, our worthy God who's deserving of all praise and I magnify him 
in the trinity of his blessed and sacred persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one eternal God. I am grateful, brothers and sisters, for the privilege to be with you. I thank Pastor Jim for the kindness he's extended to me to once again preach here at Grace Christian Assembly. It's always an honor to me, but also a privilege, also something I enjoy. It's just good being with you. And I'm grateful for the time with him and fellowship and the goodness of God in uh, giving me a friend like Elder Jim McClarty. And I'm grateful for the fellowship of you, my brothers and sisters. Good to meet some new friends this side of the glory. And trust the Lord will bless us as we look to his word together this morning. I want to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 11 in your Bibles, please. And I'd like to read the closing verses of that chapter Beginning at verse 19, reading through to the end of the chapter, verse 30. We see here what God did in Antioch, which was in Syria, north of Israel, in the days of uh, the apostle Paul's calling, his first calling to grace, and the days of Peter, that period of time. And we want to think together about it, and I do this particularly in light of the fact that today, I believe, is a, a great day for the life of this church, the Lord's church here, as uh, Brother Micah has been set aside to the deaconship, and we trust that in that, uh, we, as we focus on this portion of God's Word, that particularly, I believe, shows us the heart of a church. In these words of Acts 11, I trust our God will grant blessing to His Word. Let's read together this portion. I'll read aloud. If you'd follow along silently and carefully in your copies of God's Word, I, as I say when I'm with you, I'll be reading from the English version of 1611. And some of you haven't heard that language of Zion in a while, so you'll have the privilege. May we join together in standing in reverence of God's Word. Again, verse 19 of Acts 11, we read... Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord." Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad. And exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth or famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul." We trust our God will add his blessing today to his word as we read it, think about it together. You can take your seat, but as you do, would you join with me in prayer that our God would add his blessing to his word. Father, we bow in your holy presence once again in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask you to do what you alone can do in giving us your word this morning. May you by your spirit use this word to benefit thy people to build up the church here, Father, to work in the lives of any who may be present who know you not. And Father, we ask above all, may you exalt the Lord Jesus and glorify your name. Father, we acknowledge his worthiness and we pray that we might all leave here today loving him more and knowing more of him that we might live for him. In his name, amen. We look at these words, brothers and sisters, this morning. And again, I believe in a real way, 
we have a, a, a look into the heart of a church, into the soul of a gospel assembly, which God did there in Antioch in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, in the midst of affliction, something that is uh, Mark Twain said about uh, being tarred and feathered. He said, if it wasn't for the honor and dignity of the thing, I just soon walked out of town. And, and, you know, if we had our druthers, we would not choose the way of affliction. Alex and I were talking a little before service about the whole matter of God using affliction in our lives. And it's not our choice oftentimes, but God does that. And in doing that, he glorifies himself. And that's what happened in this instance with the persecution that arose that surrounded Stephen in his death as a deacon there in the church of Jerusalem. God magnified, God glorified himself, God honored his son in the extension of the gospel through that. And that's seen here in these words, it's seen back in Acts 8, but here in Acts 19, is, in Acts 11, 19, it's seen as well. I want us to look at the Lord's church here in Antioch as we see it in pen by Dr. Luke and in doing so, I want us to think about it in a fourfold way. In, in doing that, I, I want to call your attention, first of all, to verse 23, and then look back to where we read from verse 19. When we read about Barnabas in verse 23 of Acts 11, we read of him who, when he, had, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. I want us to think, first of all, of the Lord's church there at Jerusalem as being graced. Being graced. G-R-A-C-E-D. We don't use it as a verb often. We use it so more, so much more as a noun. But I'm not talking here about a graced church like Grace Christian Assembly. I'm talking about a graced people. The grace of God was evident in them. The grace of God was something that when Barnabas arrived there in Antioch, he had no problem seeing that grace. He had no problem recognizing it. Now, obviously, grace is not something you can put in a beaker like you can in a laboratory experiment. Grace had to be seen in other ways. Grace was displayed in the lives of God's people who had been changed by that grace. Grace is seen as we look back to verse 19 in the fact that the good news of the Lord Jesus had come to these people. That's one of the greatest evidences of the grace of God. I think about my life as a, a young person growing up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I grew up during the, well, I was born a little bit before the beginnings of the Vietnam conflict, but, but I, I lived much of my young years during that. Fayetteville was known as Vietnam to some. A lot of guys went through Fort Bragg on their way to, to Vietnam. And, and it was called Sin City, I understand, even in New York because of that influx of young GIs taking basic training and then going on. And they were, many of them, on their own for the first time in their life. And there was a lot of wickedness, sadly. There was a street, Hay Street, downtown that was known for that. I grew up there. And yet in the midst of my growing up there, God blessed me that I had a mother who the daughter of a Baptist preacher sought to tell me about the Lord Jesus in my young years. I was blessed to have someone who pointed me to Christ. There were others too, but, but God gave to me, God graced me that I was able to hear the good news. And that's what we read in verse 19. Notice again the words. Now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. But then something happened, verse 20 says, and some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come unto Antioch, spake unto the Grecians preaching the Lord Jesus. We see here that that effort of Paul or Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, it had not succeeded. Jerusalem, the gospel was expanding so well in that city that Saul, when Stephen preached that message and they, they put Stephen to death by stoning, Saul thought, I'll just jump in the middle of this fire that's happening in the church in Jerusalem and I'll stomp it out. 
And all he did was spread embers all over Judea and Samaria. It didn't succeed. And that's what happened. Acts 8 says they were scattered abroad. They went everywhere preaching Jesus. I like the way Brother Martin Lloyd-Jones put that. They went everywhere gossiping Christ. Oh, what a good way to do. If you're going to gossip, drop his name. And that's what they did. And they were scattered abroad, preaching the good news, making known the message. And that continued beyond Judea and beyond Samaria. And they went as far as Syria, north of that region of Israel. And as they got into that region, they went to Antioch. And they had basically been restricting the message. They'd been keeping it for the Jews. But remember the Lord Jesus made it clear in Acts 1.8 and other places as well. Matthew 28, Mark 16, the gospel was to go into all the world. Something happened. Some of those Cypriot and Syrian believers, I don't know if they got news about what had happened at Cornelius' household in Caesarea. And they learned that the gospel door had been opened to the Gentiles. But they began preaching, not just to the Jews, but preaching the good news to the Gentile as well. To those Greek people up there. And I'm glad for that this morning, brothers and sisters. I'm glad that the gospel leaps across the borders and the boundaries that people erect in society. I'm glad, as Brother Jim mentioned, Pastor Jim, the fact that we'll be over at Gladeville this week. Uh, We'll be among predominantly black brethren there. And I'm glad, brothers and sisters, that the gospel tears down the racial barriers that men erect. I'm glad that it, it doesn't allow For us to stay within our comfort zone, in the safety of of what we're used to, in our hood, if you will. It takes us outside of that and puts us, brothers and sisters, in contact with those who desperately need the gospel. These people were graced because the good news had come to them. And you'll notice that particularly in the last part of verse 20. As they spake unto the Grecians, these Cypriot and Cyrenian believers were preaching the Lord Jesus. The word preaching in the Greek Testament is euangelizomai. It's our word that we have transliterated as evangelize. They were, in other words, preaching the good news. What good news? That Jesus is the Lord. Now, somehow, some might translate that and say, that can't be good news. But, oh, I must say it's the best news that these ears have ever heard in this world, that Jesus is the Lord. And somehow that resonated in that Gentile society, that Gentile urban area of Antioch, a large city, one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire. And that that message resonated. And I believe one reason it resonated is because you and I, in our heart of hearts, though we are lost and fallen, though sin has done its work and we, we don't seek him, in our heart of hearts, there's what the Bible speaks of as conscience. One brother called it the amen corner of the soul. And conscience says to me, I need somebody else to run my life. Conscience says to me, I've done a poor job of doing it myself. I've sure messed things up. And you know that I was 14 when the Lord saved me, but I'd already run myself into the ground at age 14. I, I needed someone who could come in and be Lord. And that's the good news that these men preached. And these people were graced by the fact that that message had come. If we think of that message, preach the good news that Jesus is the Lord. If we think of that reality, brothers and sisters, Think about Psalm 23, so loved among God's people. The Lord is my, what? Shepherd. What do we need? We're like sheep. And that's what Isaiah 53, 6 says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In our wandering as sheep, in our lostness as sheep, we need a shepherd. We need one who is Lord, who has power and authority, who can come and find us in our lost condition. Because one thing's true. As a lost sheep, I wasn't seeking the shepherd. They tell the story of the little boy who was asked, little boy, have you found Jesus? And he said, no, sir. 
He said, oh, excuse me. He said, please, sir. I didn't know he was lost, but I was. And he found me. And that's our testimony. There was a Lord who came after us when we were like that sheep in the parable our Lord told, that threefold parable of Luke 15. We were wandering. We were lost. We did not love the fold. And the shepherd came to us where we were. And then he lifted us. And hallelujah, I'm on his shoulders going home rejoicing now. And that, brothers and sisters, was the good news that these people were graced with. Good news that spoke of him who's Lord. And you know, it's interesting. In the book of Acts, you will not find a lot of references to Jesus as Savior. But you'll find a heap. You'll find a plenty that speak of him as Lord. Why is that? Because his Saviorhood is really dependent on his Lordship. If he's not Lord, he really can't be Savior. But because he's been, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, let therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And because of his exalted position as ascended Lord at the right hand of the Father, he's able to save all who call upon him. He's able to do that to the uttermost. And he's reaching out to rescue and call his people by his grace. And they were graced with that message. It had come to them in Antioch. I'm glad it's come to Smyrna. I'm glad it's come to Nashville. I'm glad it's come to the wider area. And brothers and sisters, I'm glad it keeps spilling over. But, but not only were they graced in that the gospel had come to them, the good news that Jesus is Lord, they were also graced in the fact that as that message came, God did not leave it unaccompanied by his own work in the heart. Notice verse 21. While these witnesses were preaching the good news that Jesus is Lord, verse 21 adds, Dr. Luke writes, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. You see, that's what's also necessary. In addition to the outward hearing of the gospel through its proclamation, there also has to be an inner work in the heart. And that's what God accompanied their witness with, their preaching with. His hand was with them. I think the hand of the Lord here is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. And one reason I believe that is because as John 16 says, it's the Holy Spirit who is under orders from the Lord Jesus Christ to go and to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. In other words, he's in the world to convict us, to show sinners what they are. You know, that's something we need because sometimes we witness the gospel and people will say, I don't need that. I'm a good person. Oh, but then, you know, the scripture says clearly, Romans 3, there's none good, no, not one. But oh, it, I remember a brother years ago who said when he talked about, uh, oh, you know, talking about sinners and, and people say, but all men are sinners. And he said, ask them. It's hard sometimes. I remember another brother saying, it's hard to find a sinner here in the South. <laughs> You know, everybody's been, everybody's got religion. Everybody's done so. Everybody's been saved. Everybody's been joined the church. But you know, when the Spirit of God begins to do that work that the hand of the Lord can do, He begins to beat up on the heart. I remember when He did that to me. I, I'd read the Bible some. I, I thought I'd even prayed. I, I was a good boy. I was a hellion, is what I was. Pardon me. But I, I thought I was a good boy, you know. But then the Spirit of God began to open those closets of sin in my life. And the hand of the Lord worked so that I saw what I was, a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, Christ Jesus. And as the Spirit of God did that, the hand of the Lord worked, and I believed and turned to the Lord. Now, this has to be a work of grace. It's not something that, that we... Do by our own power and will. I, I, I appreciate so much that medley, Brother Steve and the instrumentalist. Thank you. That's him we sang, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Uh, we sang the first stanzas of both hymns, and 
I was ready for number two on both of them, really, but that's okay. We got so much time, and you know, I'll, I'll not keep you a minute past one. Okay. <laughs> so, thank you for laughing. I'm glad. Sometimes I say stuff like that, and people look worried. You know, but but that that second stanza says, "I love thee." Why? Because. Thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. But the writer, Mr. Featherstone, by the way, I understand he wrote that hymn when he was a youth, about 17 years old. Imagine that. Why could he say that? He explained it from the words of 1 John 4. We love him Because he first loved us. I love thee because thou hast first loved me. Verse 18 of chapter 11 of Acts shows that. Notice the words there, please. In verse 18, is the, the, the Gentile conversion has taken place at Cornelius' house, and some of the Jewish brethren have called Peter on the carpet for it. Peter explains it, and as he explains it, this is the result in verse 18 of Acts 11. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then is God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. God's given repentance unto life to the Gentiles. What does that tell us about repentance? It's his gift. If you have repented, you didn't repent because somehow you just manufactured repentance. Calvin said our hearts are idle factories. Idle factories don't produce repentance. God does. And as he gives it, as he gives repentance and faith, the hand of the Lord was with those who witnessed. And the result was they believed and Turn to the Lord. They experience conversion. They experience that saving change that real salvation is. And so the grace of God was seen in the fact that they were a graced church. The good news had come to them outwardly. The good news had come to them inwardly and powerfully, effectively. And they had believed that message. There's another way that I believe we can see the grace of God in the life of this church, the assembly here. And that's in those words that follow. If you will, pick up at verse 26. And again, we'll work our way back to the earlier verses. When we read of Barnabas and Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Out of what the grace of God had done for individuals in bringing the gospel to them and then bringing them to faith and repentance, as the gospel did that, the gospel did not end there. Because the gospel, it seems just about everywhere it goes, the gospel does a strange thing. The gospel manifests itself. The gospel, as it were, replicates itself in gospel churches. That is, it shows up in assemblies of God's people gathered as disciples. They've honored the Lord Jesus and followed him in baptism. And in that work, they've been brought together into fellowship. They've been brought together into the assembly of God's people. A gathered body, a gathered assembly of believers who, as Luther said early in his Reformation days, who with hand in mouth want to confess the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what God did here. They were gathered And as they were gathered, there's some things that stand out about them. And and as we read about this church in verse 22, the, the down in Jerusalem, they learned about it. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Then we notice verse 23 earlier, but let's just read it again. Who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Those words about Barnabas, I love this man Barnabas. He's, he's a large figure in one sense in the scriptures of the New Testament, but he's a lesser large figure. I mean, when we think about Paul and Barnabas, who do we speak of first? But in Acts 13, it started out Barnabas and Saul. And then somewhere about verse 13, it becomes Paul and his company. 
And I believe that's one reason John Mark left the group in Acts 13 is because Barnabas was his uncle. And he didn't like Barnabas becoming second fiddle to Paul. Uh, Barnabas didn't mind because Barney was that kind of man. I call him Barney the Encourager. Don't think about a purple dinosaur from the 90s, okay? (laughs) Barney the Encourager. And that's what he does here when he gets to Antioch. I believe those brethren at Jerusalem, when they heard God's done something up in Antioch. That's a good ways from Jerusalem by way of uh, journeying in that day. And as they heard about it, they thought, whom can we send that will bless God's people up there? Whom can we send that will help them? And immediately Barnabas came to mind. And that's what his name means, by the way, son of encouragement, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And that's what he does. And as they were gathered, Barney encouraged them. He exhorted them. The Greek word's the same, parakaleo. He spoke to them in encouragement and exhortation that with purpose of heart they would cleave to the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, that's one of the benefits of the Lord's church. One of the blessings that I have in being with God's people is I find encouragement. And I need that. Because there's really no other group on earth in this world that's going to encourage me in the things of God. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's dark out there. And I'm not talking about the fact that it's overcast and the sun's not shining. It's dark out in this world. And the reality is, because of that, there's not a lot in this world to encourage me. But when I find among God's people the fellowship of his saints, that becomes an encouragement. His word becomes an encouragement. The hymns become an encouragement. The prayers become an encouragement. God calculates that through the life of his church, as we're gathered in fellowship, that his people will be encouraged. His people will be challenged. His people will be exhorted. And that's what Barnabas did. He exhorted, he encouraged them with purpose of heart to clear to cleave to the Lord. You see, the world's not going to do that. The world is constantly in an effort, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to pull us away from him. And you know, sometimes in the nasty now and now of life, that's exactly what I feel too, pulled away. But somehow when I gather with God's people, The disconnect becomes a reconnect because God has a way of using what he does among his people and bringing us together, brothers and sisters, in that fellowship that encourages our hearts. Allow me, if you would, to share something that I believe illustrates this well from uh, Canadian geese. You may have heard this before, but if you have just suffered through it again, um, you've seen the Canadian geese flying in V formation, right? Now, The story is told that that two engineers calibrated in a wind tunnel what happens through that V formation in which the Canadian geese fly. Here's what they found out. Each goose in flapping his wings creates an upward lift for the goose that follows. When all the geese do their part in that V formation, the whole flock has a 71% greater flying range than if each bird flew alone. They're helping each other reach their destination in the journey. And brothers and sisters, that's what happens in the gathered assembly of God's people. You and I are helping one another on our journey because we've got a destination we're headed to that's out of this world. And as we head there, We can create upward lift and momentum for one another in the gathering. We can exhort one another. And by the way, those geese, as as one at the front gets tired, they'll pull around and they'll change places. And not only that, if one of them begins to get out information, they'll honk at each other. Uh, Pardon me a minute. Sometimes I need to be honked at because I'm getting out of formation And where better to be honked at than in the fellowship of the assembly of God's people where we realize, hey, these delusions that the world offers are only delusions. And what God's people are reminding me to keep in step with is what really matters in life. 
And so that's what Barnabas exhorted them. So there was encouragement in the gathered assembly. But then also, as we read on in verse 24, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. God continued to add to them. Just as we read back in verse 31, a great number believed. And by the way, think about that a moment. When the Holy Spirit says great number, what does that mean? Ah, it's got to be big to me, I think. But he continued to add. In other words, evangelism continued. As the people of God were gathered together, the work of people continually being added to the Lord, the work of salvation, that work continued. So there was not only encouragement and exhortation, there was evangelism. The ongoing work of people coming to know the Lord Jesus in a personal way of faith and salvation and forgiveness. And so, verse 24 tells us, much people is added in the Lord. But then also, if you find in verse 25 those words, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Barnabas had had an early influence on Paul in Acts 9. Some of you remember when Paul left Tarsus, or excuse me, left Damascus, and after he'd been converted, he tried to join up with the church in Jerusalem with the apostles. And all of them were saying, hey, this must be a trick. He must just be trying to win our confidence so he can get in and do more damage to us. They wouldn't receive him. Who helped him get in? Barnabas. Brother Saul. And he brought him in. And as he did that, later on when he was in Antioch, Barnabas had heard how Saul had gone back to his hometown of Tarsus. And as he was there... Barnabas, look at what God was doing in Antioch. Look at the evangelism that was continuing to build the church and it was growing even larger. Barnabas realized, hey, I know what? Saul can be a help here. Saul can plug in and he can be a blessing to the Lord's people here. Again, no kind of selfishness, no jealousy. His heart was... And if you look at the map, you don't do it now, but if you look at the map of where Antioch is, it's right there where that... Northeast corner of the Mediterranean is just on that around that hook, if you will, is Tarsus. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. Brother Saul, let me tell you, God is doing a work at Antioch. I know you've got gifts. I know you can be used. I know you can use the gifts God's given you to be a blessing to them. And brothers and sisters, may I remind you in the Lord's church here at Grace Christian Assembly, that's what God intends for you to do. It is not one man. Thank God for the pastoral teaching gifts God's given Brother Jim. But he is not to edify the whole body by himself. Every brother and sister in the body is a gifted child. And you have something to bring to build up. And that's what Barnabas realized as he thought about Saul and went around the hook and brought him back. And then Saul and Barnabas labored in teaching because he realized that that you and I are to build up. We're to edify one another. God's design is that we do that. His brother Micah has been ordained as a deacon. He'll continue to do what God has already made evident to you as a church he's been doing. And there'll be the building up of the body through that. There'll be the edification that God designs in his churches. But not only that, there was also in verse 26, we read this. And when he had found them, he brought them unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And there we see, brothers and sisters, a reality concerning what God did. There was an ongoing education, if you will. They were being taught. Now, Pastor Jim, as he mentioned, we were talking about the Job series that he did. And that was finished this past Wednesday night, I understand. How many men do you know who go through the whole book of Job? As a matter of fact, when Brother Jim and I were talking, he he asked me that. And I said, well, John Calvin did. Not many men do. And yet, God has given us the book of Job. Why? So that you and I can be built up by the truth that God put in that book. 
And brothers and sisters, that's what Barnabas and Saul set themselves about in doing there at Antioch, educating God's people. I believe they did it line upon line, precept upon precept. They did it in a way so that God's people learned, as I've heard several times already this morning, they learned about the God who is, and they came to know him in, in, a, in a more definite way, in a more intimate way, in a way of loving him more, serving and obeying him more. And that's part of what God designed as well in that gathered assembly of his people, the education of his saints. A lot of people, I'm afraid today, have no taste for doctrine, no taste for teaching. And yet the first thing that I find that the Bible's profitable for in those words of 2 Timothy 3, remember, all scripture, verse 16, all scripture is given inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And then it says correction, reproof, instruction in righteousness. But it begins with teaching, didaskalia in the Greek. That's what God's people are to be about. And Paul wanted Timothy to do that at Ephesus when he left him there as he writes in those first and second letters to Timothy. Education, the building up of God's people through the truth. And that, brothers and sisters, thank God, is what this ministry exists for here. Grace Christian Assembly. Let me ask you to notice two more things. I'm going to be quicker with them. I've got more time than I thought because a little while ago when I looked at the second hand, it was on the four and I thought, is it already 1220? Boy, I better shut up. <laughs> but now I see that that was the second hand and it's actually two minutes after 12. So I got a little more time I can milk out of you. I'm not going to keep you to one past one, God willing, as I mentioned jokingly. But brothers and sisters... Think with me, if you would, about the last part of verse 26. We read there, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. This is probably the best known verse in Acts 11. People can remember, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. It's a great verse, part of a verse really. And it speaks about how the name Christian began to be used in the empire, in the Roman Empire. It, it, it appears to have been given from the outside like a, a lot of names had been given, like Baptist and Methodist and, and other names that had been attached to groups over the years. They were given from the outside, sometimes in a pejorative, in a, in a negative, in a scornful way. But, but in this case, what's interesting is the, is, is the word in the, in the Greek text, it's translated word called in the King James and in most versions. It's the word krematisai. It can be used to speak of an oracle being given divinely. Back in chapter 10, that's how it's used. But, but the idea of the word krematisai, it's, it's not the common word for call, kaleo, or the word for the name, onanazomai. It's, it's, it's onanazomai. My tongue kept getting wrapped around my eye teeth and I couldn't see what I was saying. Excuse me there. Maybe that'll kick in later and you'll chuckle. I hope so. But, but it's not the common word. Krematisai here has the idea of to bear the name of one's profession. I, I love language and I love even the origins of language and, and words and such as that. You know, a lot of our last names come from whose son somebody was up the family tree. So you have the name Johnson common because maybe William in one community was, was John's son and another was William's Robinson, you know. And so you've got Robinson and Williamson and Johnson and Anderson and Dixon and so forth. You know, all of these son names. And understanding in Scottish, that's what Mac means. McDonald and McLeod, the son of McLeod or the son of Loud, the son of Donald, etc. But other names come when, when they started differentiating between the Johns in the community or the Williams in the community. They might say, well, he's John Baker and he's John Miller. He's John Cooper and he's John Collier. And these names, Carpenter, Sawyer, all kinds of last names we have that come from the names of occupations. That's the word, krematisai, that's used in verse 26. They were called, the disciples were called Christians. 
they bore the name of their occupation. In other words, those Antiochian people that lived there, the citizens of that city, they looked at these people that were disciples. They said, What's he do? Why, Christian, that's all I can tell you. He's occupied with Christ. Christ is his life. It's Jesus in the morning, Jesus in the noontime, Jesus when the sun goes down. In other words, the gospel had so overturned, the gospel had so overturned the lives of those who had received it by grace there at Antioch that their life was now given over to Christ. Uh, Later on, it will be said in Acts 17, they that have turned the world upside down or come hither about Paul Paul and Silas. And I like what Vance Habner said about that. He said they were turned upside down and they were already upside down. So when you get upside t- turned upside down again, that makes you right side up. Catch that, okay? And that's the way life is for us in our lost condition. It's upside down. But the gospel turns us right side up. And it teaches us. As we read what Paul says in Philippians 1.21, writing from prison in Rome to God's saints at Philippi, for me to live is... Christ to die as gain. When he speaks in Colossians 3, another prison epistle, he says, when Christ who is our life shall appear. And then later in that chapter, he'll say, Christ is all. And that's what marked, it seems, the life of the Lord's people and the Lord's church there at Antioch. So that as people looked at their lives, they would say, what does he do? What does she do? What's he occupied with? What's his occupation? Christ. And you know, among the Lord's churches, it used to be that we spoke about when a person would come forward saying they trusted Christ, we would say, he's made a profession of faith. Where do we use that word profession otherwise? What's your profession? What do you do? In other words, the business of their life became Christ. In his great book on uh, distinguishing marks of a work of God, Jonathan Edwards lays that down among three principles that he gives for a real mark of the work of God. He gives a lot of marks that could be or may not be. But he says that when a Christian is really a Christian, the business of his life becomes Christ. That's what God had done at Antioch. And so we would say the grace of God, they were graced, they were gathered, but they were also governed by a principle. Christ is all. One final thing quickly. I won't read it again, but in verses 27 through 30, brothers and sisters, we read that they were also giving or gracious, if you will. The grace of God made them gracious. They were when, when, when news came, as prophets would come up and teach in the church at Antioch, one of them was named Agabus. Now, some of you remember, he's the guy later when Paul is going to Jerusalem. He takes Paul's belt, Paul's girdle or sash, and he ties his hands up with it. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit, the man who owns this sash, he's going to be bound by the Jews. He seemed to like to act out his prophecies. And that's what the word signified means here, it seems. I don't know if he rubbed his belly and pointed to an empty mouth, but there's going to be a famine. He probably shared some details verbally. It's going to cover the whole world. And immediately there at Antioch, God's people said, well, Y2K's coming. We better gather some canned goods and put them in our pantry. No. No, they said, famine's coming. We better send some help down to our brothers in Judea. We owe them so much. The gospel came to us through them. And if they'd ministered to us of their spiritual things, we ought to minister to them of our carnal things. And so they give. Why? Because grace made them gracious. Elder Greg Spots, who's the moderator and host pastor of the Sovereign Grace Conference that meets in July down in Chattanooga. Brother Spots tells about men who will sometimes walk up to him and say, I can define grace. And he'll look back at him and say, yes, but does grace define you? That's a good point. These people, grace had defined them and they were gracious. And so the first thing on their heart when they heard of the need was to say, let's give. Not for ourselves, but for our brethren. I remember years ago reading about a, a two American men, one a lawyer, one a businessman, who took a round-the-world tour back in the 50s. 
As they were passing through Korea, there was a missionary who was their interpreter and guide as they were in South Korea. They walked by a farm where a father was behind the handles of a plow. And in front of the plow was his son who was harnessed to the plow. One of the men, one of the men from the States, a businessman, looked at the situation, looked at the scene and said, they must be quite poor. And the missionary, their guide, said, yes, that's the family of Chino V. After the war, their church had been destroyed, their building. And so they didn't have the money. They sold their ox in order to give to build the church. They were both quiet, the businessman and the lawyer. But when the businessman got back home to the States, he showed his pastor a picture of those two men. Oh, and by the way, I left out the, the, when the guide told them that, initially one of them said, that must have been quite a sacrifice. The missionary replied, Chino V didn't look at it that way. He felt blessed to have an ox to give. Then they were quiet. When they got back, pastor showed a picture by one of those men of that scene. And he said, Pastor, I want you to give me some plow work to do around here in the church. He said, I'm going to double my giving as well. He said, I've never given anything to to the Lord that really was a sacrifice. He said, I had to go halfway around the world to learn that lesson. God's people at Antioch were marked by a giving spirit, by graciousness. And that, brothers and sisters, is something we learn as we recognize the depth of what God has given to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's done that for us. Shouldn't we be givers too? Grace made them gracious. Grace made them givers. May the Lord bless his word to us. And may we, as we see the heart of this assembly here, may God replicate that here in Smyrna at GCA. Brother Jim. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.